Welcome to a new episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Benedivo. Today, we're delighted to welcome Chen Amit, the co-founder and CEO of Tapalti, a company that's transforming the world of accounts payable and payment management. Chen, a seasoned entrepreneur and tech executive, has spent his career at the intersection of technology, innovation, and leadership. From finding initial success in tech and product management to steering billion-dollar companies, Chen's experiences offer invaluable insights into this evolving tech landscape. During our conversation, Ken shares a journey from believing that Depaulting might be this side project to building it into this disruptive fintech powerhouse that it is today. He talks about the challenges of finding solutions to complex problems, the advantages of being an outsider to these problems, and the pivotal role of executive coaches in his journey. Ken also provides unique insights into structuring these early stage companies, making those initial crucial hires and making high performance teams. Whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur or experienced business leader, Ken's experiences and wisdom are sure to offer really valuable lessons. Without further ado, let's welcome Ken and dive into this enriching conversation. And with that, a warm welcome to Ken Amit from Tapalti. Where are you calling in from today? Calling in from sunny Tel Aviv in Israel. Sunny Tel Aviv. That's nice. It's just starting to get warm here in the US. But um, yeah. Anyways. Like I guess from could... New York, I was in New York last week and it was gorgeous, but yeah, it's currently sunny and really lovely outside. Where, where are your offices around the world? Our, well, we have offices. Our headquarters is in um, Forster City, California, uh, engineering and product in Tel Aviv. Uh, we have uh, offices in Toronto, Vancouver, Plano, Texas, um, London, Amsterdam, and Tbilisi, Georgia. Wow, that's awesome. Um, okay, cool. So I think just to start off, uh, for the sake of our listeners, just a bit about your background, how you started off in tech, and your journey into fintech as well. Well, I'll have to age myself when I'll say how I started with tech. I started way before the personal computer was created. Uh, for anyone who goes to the computer museum, there's one in uh, uh, in the Bay Area near Palo Alto. Uh, there was a Commodore 64 computer before the personal computer. So I actually started developing code for hire on the Commodore 64 as a teenager. So when my friends were washing cars, I also washed cars for a living as a young kid. But uh, quickly, I moved into writing code, education software on the Commodore 64. As a teenager, went to undergrad. Obvious, like it was obvious for me what my career was when I was already a teenager. Went to undergrad in uh, computers engineering. And um, yeah, never looked back, as they say. Quite a bit different from uh, these days where you have all the nice... uh you know, interfaces for coding and you can sit there and use ChatGPT on the side, helping you figure out the little uh, nuances, stack overflow. Actually, one of my major achievements as a teenager was really writing some fancy assembly code on the Commodore 64, like drivers and changing the keyboards and, you know, fancy stuff way back when, when there was nothing, no environments, no development kits. It was all really hard for. Wow. So, so take me through the, the journey a little bit. So you started as a programmer and then I know you got your MBA from INSEAD. Right. Um, kind of what was your thought process? A lot of our listeners are also in their MBA or have gotten their MBA. Kind of what was the thought process afterwards and your journey into ECI? 
Yeah. So after in Technion, where I had my engineering degree, I wanted to go and work for the most exciting tech company there was. And back then, ECI was the high flyer tech company in Israel. I joined them it, shortly after joy joining, like I think a couple of months after joining, they started a new product line. And I was, as a junior developer, tasked on, on, on that initial team that built a product from ground zero. A couple of years later, there was another opportunity to start a new product line. Now as a, a let's call it a systems engineer, jumped on that. And kind of my career was starting from ground zero products and projects and companies um, regularly, like th this is how all my career was, uh, more or less. Uh, at some point, you know, I'm, I'm a curious guy. I was really all about engineering and developing and writing software. I don't think I met a customer before going to INSEAD, to my MBA. I knew that they existed out there, <laughs> but uh, I never met one. And I really was intrigued by the business uh, side, like it was just all an unknown territory for me. So I said, okay, let's go and, and go to business school to learn uh, about what business is about. And in INSEAD, many MBA candidates come from McKinsey and Goldman Sachs and, you know, the likes. Where yeah, they same, had, same at Wharton, same deal. <laughs> yeah, so I think I got more out of business school than most others uh, because I didn't have that background for me. I really, uh, you know, learned and, and uh, tried, you know, everything was new and everything was exciting for me and I learned a lot. And then, and so that was the trigger. The trigger was just an, an, an interest in what business is, is about and, and how business drives technology. And I came back as more of a business person uh, than I was before going to business school and was tasked uh, with starting a new business line for ECI. I went back to ECI. At the time, uh, they expected to sunset a major business line and they were looking to replace it with new sources of revenue. And that was my goal. So again, from the ground up, starting from zero, a new, a new product line for the company. Uh, I initially led the sales and marketing, then was general manager, then Brought it to $100 billion in sales when I was there. It was a few billion dollars uh, later. And um, yeah, that was that was the beginning of my business career, let's, let's call it. That's awesome. What are some of your main lessons and takeaways from your early years? I guess starting stuff from scratch, starting from zero. Well, uh, it's, yeah, good question. I think there are many lessons, right? I think the number one lesson that, came, the lesson that came to mind is how important the founding team is and how important it is to correct mistakes in hiring uh, very quickly. Uh, in some of those ECI initiatives, both when I was junior and when I was the leader, uh, others made mistakes. I made mistakes that I, I now know how to recognize and I think slow down and... and um, were you know hindering the development of those uh, businesses? Another uh, lesson, you know, th there's these defining moments in your career that that go with you and, and help you develop uh, as a person. 
early after inside in that business line that that I started there was a major difference of opinion with a major customer the major customer was Deutsche Telekom we're building a new product never sold it to anyone and Deutsche Telekom thought that we need to build the product differently than what we were doing and they were all set Deutsche Telekom was set on like their safe place was in a different setup of a product than what we were offering them but we knew that it was the right product and just saying no to customers even at very 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 early stages is really important and understanding that the customer is mostly right not always right uh, is also important it later was uh, i had a very similar experience starting tipalti and um, so yeah have 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 a backbone have a true belief in what you're doing and what you're doing and have a clear vision and operate without with that vision even in the face of really important customers at really critical times it's a balancing act right i'm not telling anyone to to act silly but don't always follow the customer it's really important or the investor for that that's so interesting to hear yeah yeah, yeah that's so interesting to hear and i'm going to ask you about the tipalti uh story uh, a bit later when you're first starting out because that that sounds really interesting um you did mention that there's some ways to recognize when maybe there's a mismatch could you talk a little bit more about that like what does that look like when you feel like mm, something just isn't working here what are some ways that you've found to to recognize that mismatch recognize and you know the example i have in my head when when it was on me not on others it was in my face like it was it was uh, impossible to not recognize it was more about me at the time as a young manager uh, not having the tools uh, or yeah I, I just was never co- it wasn't a company that was laying off people or that was a it was a soft company in a way with people and uh, today you know i i um, I just had an experience with a red flag with someone uh someone junior so it's not anyone close to me but y- y- your gut feel you know you have to be uber sensitive if it's given that people put so many layers of let's call it makeup and and shields and and the costumes when they interact with me as CEO every nuance matters every glimpse of something matters So today I'm I'm hypersensitive to a uh, you know deviation from culture a poor execution a poor quality of decisions it's just I'm hypersensitive to that it's not that every time I experience it you know it's a bloodshed but I'm just hypersensitive and then I double click and double click and either I get comfort or I know that something is wrong yeah that's I mean it's so important to hear about these things when you're in the beginning of your career kind of get the secrets from uh you know people thought of experience like yourself i guess also how did you mature and change as a leader because when you first started out leading these business units whether it's at ECI or later in your career you know you coming from this engineering background you didn't necessarily have the experience how did, how how has your leadership changed yeah i think it's first of all how you changed you changed through one on the job training some scars that i had to inflict on myself and some learnings from smart people i hired and learned from 
there's no doubt I've learned a lot from all of my, uh, you know, C-level colleagues in, in the company. They're all very smart, very capable, and I learned from them. I, I managed larger and larger organizations. I think in that, in ECI, I burned, like I was burnt out. When I left, I was burnt out, and I, it was predominantly because I wasn't fully ready for the role, right? I It was a good, I did a decent job and, and built a billion, you know, a billion dollar business for the company, a multi-billion dollar business for the company. So know that I did something right, but I learned afterwards that um, I wasn't really uh, ready for the job. And yeah, it hardens you. You, you learn, a, for me, ideally you learn from others, you learn in school, you learn uh, through coaches in, in Tipalti, I took a coach that worked with me for the first, uh, not for the first, but for a period of five years between 2015 and 2020. I tried a few coaches later, and now I work, I, I have a group of friends that I consult with, other CEOs with similar size, similar stage companies that I consult with. From time to time, I'll reach out to people who are at the later stage and, you know, have built a multi-billion dollar revenue company and 10,000 person company and what what are the steps that, what should I expect in the next five years? And I think mostly I'm, I'm just cognizant that I don't know, that I'm learning and I'm open for that. And it's also what's uh, what's driving me in my role, right? That, that the role is changing, that I'm learning, that I'm developing. I think it's what drives every employee's retention and engagement predominantly it's about learning and growing and developing and the ceo is no different that's awesome so yeah i've started to hear a lot about executive coaches is that uh was that something that you found effective or do you do you think it's a little bit more effective to go to people who are doing it now kind of like as you said going to people who are maybe a couple stages ahead of where depalti is and getting to see what the next five years will look like or did you actually like the full-time, hey, or maybe not full-time, but someone who's dedicated and saying, this is my my coach? For me, the latter worked better. So I found someone who was the president of a company that was a few stages ahead of, uh, of Tipalti. He left that company and was looking for his next gig and thought he'll be a coach. It turned out that now he has a firm with, I think, a dozen or a couple dozen coaches, and that's you know a very successful firm. Uh, it's called um, Enjoy uh, ETW. Enjoy the work, ETW. Jonathan Lowenhauer. So I'll give props to him. For me, that worked better. Well, you know, friends and ex- advices are fine for spot questions you may have, but someone uh, Jonathan and I would meet. Every week on a Monday, I think it was a Monday or a Sunday, maybe it was even a Sunday for him in the US. And I was would just throw the top of mind from the last week. What what or you know, what I was thinking, what what am, what is top of mind for me that moment? And we'll just have someone with you know who's on my side hundred percent and uh, has has experience of a few steps ahead of me. By now, I'm way ahead of him, but at the <laughs> right. time, he was uh, he was uh, he had the experience that I was lacking, and that was great for me. Like even tactical questions, some of them were non-tactical, 
some of them just processes that companies of later stage engage with. Uh, that was very valuable for me. I also proposed the same to my C-levels to uh, work with coaches. Some of them took that advice and worked with coaches that made a difference for them as well. So uh, I highly recommend it. That's awesome. And kind of in that, in that same vein, what's one thing that you wish someone would have gone back and told you when you're, let's say, right after business school, right after NCAD, just starting out? What's one thing that you wish someone came back and told you? You know, I, today in Tipalti, every manager goes through layers of manager, co- man, manager development. Just basic, uh, basic skills, basic uh, processes, skills uh, of, of basic manager. I lacked that. I went to business school, but they don't teach you management in business school. They teach you business, whatever that means. They don't teach you the day-to-day interaction, employees, how do you manage them, coaching employees, all of that. And today we give that to our employ- our managers, and I think that that's something I missed. One thing that I did get from the company that was really pivotal for me was sales training. So I came from the tech realm, product realm, and I went through it. The title was called IBM Biz- uh, Sales Coaching. I don't know, today there are, you know, it's flavor of the week. Every few years, uh, sales methodologies change. But that was really a very material for me, learning and learning through simulation and video recording and experiencing myself in a sales situation. And some of the coaching advices were really material for me. So I think base, the basic stuff, uh, basic management, was something that took me a while to catch up with. And uh, yeah, that's one thing. Awesome. Okay, now transitioning to talk a little bit more to your journey of starting Topalti. So Topalti now is, you know, one of the biggest fintech startups in the world, one of the fastest growing in the world. Take me back to the early days. Take me back to how you started it, who you started it with. Yeah. So prior to Tipalti, I was the CEO. That was my only venture outside of starting businesses from ground zero. Uh, I was brought in as CEO for a 200-person company in telecommunications. And shortly after I joined, there was an, an acquisition opportunity and we sold the company. And at the time, I lived in the Bay Area in California. I moved back to Israel. And... Tried my own initiatives actually around uh, online poker and scraping poker sites and creating uh, player databases with player tendencies. And uh, it was a nice, uh, I was into poker at the time. I still play poker, but uh, I was into poker at the time. It was a nice uh, gig, but uh, I understood that it's not a business and, and abandoned it after a while. I reached out to a friend from inside from business school who uh, is a professional investor, very successful investor, and uh, told him that I'm itching to do something and if he sees anything in his portfolio to let me know. And that was March of 2010. In August, he reaches out to me and tells me about one of his portfolio companies that was experiencing some pains around payments. So the three of us met. My friend name is Oren Ziv from Ziv Ventures today. And uh, we met with the portfolio company, the founder of that, one of the founders of that company is Yariv Davidovich. So Yariv, 
Oren and I met, and Yariv described the problem to me. And, and given that I didn't come from the domain, the problem appeared to be a little bit too obvious, naive, something like he needed to pay. It's, a, it was an, it's an online advertising network that needed to pay publishers around the world. Paying people around the world didn't seem to me like rocket science, like it should have been resolved ages ago. So I thought, you know what, maybe there isn't a business here after all, but I'll help him, I'll find a solution, and, you know, I'll be busy for a couple of weeks. I was bored at the time. And after those couple of weeks, I learned that there isn't actually a, pro there isn't actually a solution and that the problem is not payment. So I sat with him, I shadowed him for a couple of days, and the problem was way uh, broader than payments. It was about onboarding the publisher wherever they are. They were in many countries for that company, capturing tax forms, validating tax forms, validating that the person is a real person, that there's no fraud, capturing whatever the regulator wants you to capture. Like there was a lot of more uh, to do than just the payments. And shortly after I met Yariv, I met another gentleman, uh, David uh, from Play Media. I'm just giving credits to everyone who deserves the, those credits. And he also told me that he has the same pain. And so I, and two, the two of them said they'll be my first customers. But then when I continued to interview uh, prospects to evaluate the problem, <laughs> I, I had a dozen others who said, no, not interesting. Don't touch it. We solved it. There's no problem. Yeah. So it was really baffling for me, and I, I wasn't sure what to do. I had two really, two real customers that said they were going to be my customers, and a dozen others who said no, no problem. Wow. And I've, I've had the experience with uh, venture capital at that point in time, and I knew that I wasn't ready to get into the commitment of fundraising. If you co fundraise, you really commit for five years and to build a company and the whole you know, the whole process. And I didn't know whether this is a real company or just a side project that I would have. So I decided I was happy with a side project. I, at that time, it was 2010, there was a book published uh, with the title, The 4-Hour Work Week. I never read the book, but the title was really uh, exciting. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, title was really exciting for me. Said, yeah, maybe that's that's my destiny. I'll, I'll build a, prod, a solution for these two customers and find the next thing while doing so. <laughs> um, at that point in time, 2010, I haven't been a professional developer for 17 years. So despite that, I decided that I will write the code. I will work with these two customers. It will be just a one-person company. Uh, and we'll see how where it takes me. So for the first year, I wrote the code, I served the customers, I integrated with the banks, I did everything. There was actually, a, I had two email addresses, one with my name, chen.amit.com. There was another email address, I forget the name of the person, a fake name, so that when they send emails to support, it wouldn't be the CEO, it would be someone else, <laughs> and it was a, a phone system that you called and you dialed one for marketing, two for sales. <laughs> it all went to me. So I thought I was I was 
hiding, but later they, they all told me that they knew exactly <laughs> what was going on and they still like to work with me. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Having been in an early stage startup, I, I totally I get that, that you have five different email addresses and you it's all just you. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, I love that. Exactly. That's so cool. I mean, I think it's that. Actually, I interviewed Dovi Francis, also one of your investors, and he said one thing he brought up was actually having founders who are outside of the domain as an interesting practice. And I, I think that that sounds like kind of what you were going through. You had this outside perspective that maybe it necessarily wasn't what people who are living it day in, day out would have thought of, but you had this new and, and uh, innovative uh, way of approaching it. I actually think it was critical to our, yeah, I think it was critical to our success that it didn't come from the domain. At that time, by the way, so customer number three, I um, I engage with with uh, Seeking Alpha. It's a company in the finance yeah. uh, knowledge domain. Yeah. So they were customer number three, and I went there and met with the finance team. And one of their board members told them, "Go and ex- and explore Company X. I won't name them, but they they still exist. A, a good company with a good business." They were a 400-person company. I was a one-person company. And and um, so they were way ahead of me, but they looked at the business uh, problem differently than I did. And later, when we moved into accounts payable, um, there, was in, there were other companies that were already playing in this field and looked at the problem in a different way than us. So the fact that I came with a fresh eyes, with no with no expectations, with no shackles, with no, oh, this is how we do business uh, here. Uh, like the example in Deutsche Telekom, this was also me that is not an insider coming and designing a product that is not what they expected me to design. I think it uh, means a lot and is critical for our success. And um, in a way, had I come from the industry, knowing today everything I know, about how hard it is, I may not have started Tipalti. I think uh, I, ignorance was a bliss in this case. Absolutely. It didn't turn out to be a three-week uh, side project, huh? No, no, no. <laughs> it's uh, 13 years in, and I'm looking forward to the next decade. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I guess, like, sales-wise, you know, you're thinking in the beginning, how do you think about selling to, you know, these these larger enterprises you know, especially in the beginning when there's, they have different ways of attacking the problem. You know, how did you like think through how am I going to sell this to Infolinks, let's say, for example, or some of your next customers to convince them that, hey, maybe you've already been doing this for five years, you're an established business, but this solution really is going to be, you know, going to save you a lot of time, save your finance teams a lot of time. Yeah, I think um, one one thing that helped me was that Tipalti is solving a problem that no one wants to deal with. It's not a sexy problem. It's not your marketing solution or your sales solution or your video editing or machine learning or, you know, it's managing suppliers and payment to suppliers and tax issues and money laundry. And really, no one should really deal with these things. It's really a place there where automation uh, will help everyone, both uh, uh, in, in the resources the company uh, deploys, but also uh, no one of our customers is really passionate about the problem. So when I come 
with an, a proposition to automate this, uh, people love it. So it's uh, it really was. It, this is product market fit, right? When you have a solution to a real problem that people are eager to solve. So it wasn't that hard, and it's still. It's always uh, hard to sell a product, but people understood the problem immediately, and they were either ready to solve it or not ready to solve it. And, and you know, that that's an easier sale than most. How did your early sales go? Like, were they introductions from, like, on Zev or some other people who had a lot of connections to a bunch of different, you know, medium, large size enterprises or or through friends? Yeah. So a lot through the network, Oren brought in many of the early customers. One of the first four customers is through a friend from kindergarten. So you reach, o- in Israel. You reach, out, in Israel. you reach deep. Yeah, you reach deep <laughs> when, you try, when you're an entrepreneur. And then you ask your customers for referral to other potential customers and you ask. That's awesome. I love that. I love that hustle. I love that you you were just alone for a year. That's that's yeah. Sounds like such a good way to start to start a company. I was alone for the year for a year. I like to say that the second year I doubled the company and went global. <laughs> I hired one person in Los Angeles. So that's, that's that achieved both. Yeah, that achieved both. So it's not as if we grew the second year much. I hired someone to help me explore whether there is a problem in the U.S. And only after the second year I started hiring. And, you know, the initial team and the developers to help me and so on. How did you think about hiring that original team? Um, I was fortunate. A a friend of mine referred me to a person that helped him with recruiting. She's she's not a recruiter by profession. She's a former developer and team lead in a fairly large company. And she decided to moonlight as a, a recruiter. And she's a, one of the smartest recruiters I know because she knows development, she knows coding, she knows developers. She's just, a, a, and she's a very smart person. So the first hundred people in the company were hired with her help. And we were really spoiled. Like she would bring a candidate for the last two interviews. It wasn't as if, it was an early, she, she brought the, the people to the last, you know, almost signing. Like there were very few that she brought in and we disqualified. Uh, she was that good. So that's how we did it. With the scars I had from past life, actually the first person I hired uh, to help me to be the initial leader of engineering, I also had to part ways with after a... Uh, less than a year, uh, because it wasn't a good cultural fit. Like he, he and I, I understood it, uh, that he and I are not a good fit. And uh, in past life, it would have taken me ages. In this environment, I, under- I identified it. Uh, it also wasn't overly fast. It, you always regret. You never regret. Of, uh, there's a saying that you never regret of letting someone go too early. It's always too late. Uh, but I was, uh, again, early in, in the lifetime of the company, fragile company. I didn't hesitate and uh, changed the gears in that role. How did you think about um, structuring the organization in the beginning? Like in terms of product, engineering, sales, 
Um, was there a specific way that you thought about how you wanted to set everything up in terms of leaders and teams? Yeah, um, it, it's a it's a pretty flat organization in the early days, right? So I had a, a team leader. Uh, so when I let go of that first individual, I promoted uh, one of my early developers, who's now the CTO of Tipalti, uh, from an individual contributor to a team leader. Later, from a team leader to you know whatever as a director, then a VP. Then a head of engineering now is the CTO. The head of engineering today uh, was also an individual contributor who promoted. So I promoted him to be a team lead and uh, I hired a product manager, a senior person as a product manager. He really uh, wanted to be a VP or like a big title. I wasn't ready for that. And he was smart enough to you know bet on me and the company and join uh, as a product manager. And now he's the head of uh, the chief product officer in the company. Uh, so I really wanted everything really tight, close with me. Actually, in uh, I think it was 2013, uh, there was one prospect that when I met with them, they explained the need that was really a new product for us. And the natural thing would have been to give it to the a product person and to give it to engineering and let them develop it. But I went back and said, you know what, it, this really needs to be done quickly and went back to coding for a week and, you know, was able to scramble <laughs> no a solution for a week. Now, obviously it's not the right thing to do. It's not for Tupalti today. It's not the right thing to do at the time in the hustling times, you really wanted to come back to the customer and say, look, I told you we have that. And the only way to say, yes, we have, of course we have it, is to do it within a week <laughs> and come to them and uh, show them this the product. And it's a product that's still a very successful product for us. Wow. That's that's awesome. Um, how were some, what were some of your, I guess, early and I guess maybe persistent challenges in selling to larger enterprises? Because a lot of the times... I think especially in the office of the CFO space, yeah. there's this kind of desire to run to early stage, run to small companies, run to SMBs. But y'all y'all kind of went to, to large, you started with, you know, it sounds like you started with larger enterprises from the very beginning. We're targeting mid-market. Mid-market for mid -market, us is yeah. up to a thousand employees. Yeah. So up to a thousand employees, it's still challenging when you get to the edge, uh, but it's 50 to a thousand employees. The first customers were on the lower end of the range. Uh, Seeking Alpha was probably a hundred person company, maybe a couple hundred person company. The other companies, uh, but but uh, the, when I hired the person in the US, uh, shortly after I hired him, I think I hired him in, in August and in November, he got two prospects, which would be the, our two largest customers at that time. Uh, one of them is still with us and still one of the, I think, 20 largest customers we have. And again, it goes back to product market fit. These people had the pain. We were the solution. There was no other or better solution out there. And they were ready to sign up. What you do need is early adopters, is innovators, customers who are willing to go on the leading edge of technology and uh, understand or live through some friction that comes with that. But yeah, you know, advance their organizations by uh, taking chances on new technologies. You need 
venture customers. I have a friend who says you don't more than you need venture capital, you need venture customers. <laughs> and uh, those you find, uh, you find early adopters, a lot of them in tech. But if you venture outside of tech, you need to make sure that the person in front of you is willing uh, to engage with the young company when you just start. Were there any sales that are, or leads that you were like, you know what, this person's not going to be an early invest, like an early venture customer. They're just not, not going to be, take that and you kind of cut it off quickly before investing months of your time trying to sell this person. I'm not sure. I think you fight for everything at the beginning. Yeah. You just, you know, you, you don't, uh, you, you, uh, beggars can't be choosers. I think at the, right. at the beginning right. you fight, uh, with your head and nails and, and, you know, teeth and just try to uh, latch on everything. Uh, today we're really, really prescribed. We won't, would not, uh, we, we do not prospect at all beyond our ideal customer profile, ICP. So we have a very defined ICP and we're very disciplined about that. In the beginning, you cannot be disciplined. You need to be a little bit exploring, right? You don't know if larger customers are good for you or not good for you. You know that those who are not ready for a early stage for a young products that you know but you don't know if you should aim lower or higher this the industry that industry so you 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 try more until you settle on on where your ideal customer profile is what, what is your ideal customer profile if you don't mind sharing i don't know if you can share something like yeah that. the ideal customer profile is a mid-market company uh, so 50 to a thousand employees uh, it uses uh, an ERP, ERP, an accounting software that is that that is used by uh, mid-market companies. It's NetSuite, Intac, uh, Microsoft. There are a few of those. Uh, we have a great success in tech, software, business services, online uh, of sorts, uh, gaming, streaming, uh, marketplaces, and the such. Um, but it's very broad within that scope. So 50 to a thousand, we have verticals that we know are, are earlier adopters. So ideal customer profile, here's the problem with, with this group, with this group, you have finance leaders in companies that are kind of in between in terms of size, they're not your corner coffee shop that they just don't care, right? They, for them accounts payable is cutting a check at the end of the week. And they are not your Disney or General Electric that have armies managing suppliers, armies managing taxes, armies managing compliance, armies managing treasury. They are in between. They know what great execution looks like, but they completely lack the ability to execute. In these size organizations, uh, resources go anywhere but the back office, suppliers, you know, all that uh, process. Uh, so when you solve for these people, you need to have a solution that is relatively broad because they will not be able to integrate discrete fun uh, solutions. It needs to be relatively deep because they already have some level of complexity and like your corner coffee shop, but it needs to be very simple. Breath, depth, and simplicity is really the crux of what we do. And uh, that's why the mid-market is really ideal for what we do. And, and in terms of, this is kind of something that's a little bit more interesting to me about Tipaldi, but the, 
there's this huge push to product-led growth in Silicon Valley. Everyone's talking about it and it's on all the podcasts and whatever. But Tipaldi has a very strong like, sales motion, right? Like it's very sales-based, it seems like. Is there anything that you're considering or anything that you think about when you're structuring? Are you trying to push more towards product-led growth and letting people kind of feel the value of the product before they make the final sale or whatever it might be? Um, I guess, how are you thinking about those two issues? So first, that's actually part of the problem and part of our strength is that we are able to solve for the mid-market. The mid-market, PLG only, it'll be hard to solve completely with PLG because of the level of complexity that this customer experience. So we actually generate value by having some white glove work with our customers in the sales process and the implementation. Having said that, before the term PLG was uh, coined, Tipalti actually has a PLG motion. It's very nuanced, but it's real. So part of our revenue is currency conversion. We do not sell currency conversion. There's no person in Tipalti, there's no skew for currency conversion. What happens is that in the product, when our customer introduces our product to their suppliers, the suppliers use the supplier portal that we provide. And then we tell them, do you want to use that currency or this currency? And we tell them how much they will pay, the suppliers will pay. So that is completely product, that is completely product-led growth. That is the large part of our revenue. So we've been in PLG uh, in that respect from version 0.1, if you will. Uh, today we use PLG in upsell and cross-sell and uh, it's very successful for us, but we do believe that our customers require a certain level of white glove that is critical. We can be PLG assisted, uh, you know, uh, there are all kinds of varying terms for PLG today. So we use PLG to assist us in demos, in other ways, but uh, there's a lot of value to be created with the white glove approach. I love that. Yeah, I mean, that totally makes sense because you're setting up the product. You, need, you obviously have a lot of work to set up a product that's so broad, right, for a complex organization. But then you use product-led growth to, on certain features and certain upsells or whatever it might be. That's, that's cool. You know, that's something you don't really hear that much about. But that sounds like a great strategy. Uh, I guess we're getting towards the end of the podcast or end of the recording. Um, I do do this little thing called the lightning round, just to kind of hear some fun things that you do. So I guess let's start off uh, product in Tipalti's products that you offer that you're most passionate about. Maybe one of the vertical products that you offer. Product that they're most passionate about. <laughs> I'm really passionate about the whole, uh, I'm really passionate about the, the prospect of Tipalti becoming a giant. Like I think we have an opportunity to dominate a huge category and it'll take us five years, 10 years, but we will be 20% of a $100 billion market. We will be a $20 billion company. The, it's mostly about our execution. Surprises always throw curveballs at you, but barring surprises, it's in our control and we need to get there. Products, yeah, there are products. There is a product that we have yet to release 
uh, will release a version of it this year that is on the insights domain that is very interesting, but I cannot tell you about it. Oh man, I, I'll have to I'll have to have you back <laughs> on the podcast once you announce that. It sounds really cool. Yeah. Which podcasts do you listen to? Yeah, I'm not a big podcast listener, unfortunately. There, we'll get you on the War Fintech podcast. We'll get you listening. Let's do that. <laughs> Any suggestions uh, for content or ways to learn more for someone who's interested in learning more about building finance tools for finance teams, CFOs? Any insights? My biggest insight, I think, or Oren is a really Oren Zeb, my co-founder, is a really successful investor, and he likes to invest in categories that don't have a name. So fintech, you know, there's so much money that has gone into fintech. Maybe you can innovate. I'm sure that you can still innovate. So I'm not. I'm not trying to say you can't. But the real fortunes are in the new categories, in those fields that don't yet have a name, find that field, uh, you will have more opportunities. I love that. Um, and top book recommendations? Handmaid's Tale. You know, in, in Israel now, Handmaid's Tale is uh, get, getting a new life. And uh, I think, uh, yeah, it's a really interesting story. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Hanamid, for the time. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of your evening in Tel Aviv. And thanks for joining us on the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please like or comment on social media, or even consider leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast. Or you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium, at Warren Fintech. And there you can find interviews, articles, and so much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Saria. And until next time, I'm your host, Josh Benedivo.